Help me welcome David. I am David Compulsible Reader. Hi, David. And it's strange, I haven't been at a meeting that you had this long to share in a long time. Uh, I'm used to like 20 minutes, 25, but years ago we used to, it was like 45 minutes or an hour, and uh, I've learned to shorten it, so I don't know if how I'll be lengthened going back to the way I used to share at meetings. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about what it used to be like, what happened, what I'm like now. That's what I've learned. Um, but I want to tell you about something today. When I drove up to this meeting, I go to a men's tag on Wednesday right across the street. So I'm used to this area, and I always pass this church, and I think there's a Boy Scouts thing on Wednesday when I come in. But I used to go to an A meeting here, 20, almost 25 years ago, there was a big Thursday, it may still be here, a big Thursday night A meeting. Also, I think, I don't remember what day, but there used to be an Al-Anon or Alateen meeting upstairs in one of these rooms. And I used to go for several years uh, just to hear, when I came into OA, it was 1976, and there wasn't a lot of strength in OA. And after I was in a while, started going to A meetings to get to just hear recovery and hear speakers, and, and, and it was a very good meeting. Uh, so I'm familiar with this church, but when I walked in, I remember the kind of person I was. Before I went to that AA meeting, I was terrified to go to an AA meeting. I was just, just fear. This, this, I, this is my disease, and this is what I want to share. What a, what a miracle I see even after all these years, I have to remember because I was just terrified. I didn't know what alcoholics might be like. I didn't know what going to something besides OA. I had been scared enough to go to OA, but then to to go to some other program that I wasn't a member and and what would how people would treat me. And I just remember being terrified. And then also with the Alateen, I went a couple times and and just being terrified. And eventually I got over it and it became a regular, the, uh, the A meeting here became regular. And I forgot about how terrified until I walked in because it, now it's been a long time since I've been in this building. But that just, um, I've come far. I've come far and I'm glad every once in a while to get to share my story because I need to remember where I come from. You know, today my life is a miracle. When I look back at the person who I was 25 almost 26 years ago, that I'd be terrified to just walk in somewhere and sit in the back and just be so terrified. And today I can walk in and not know if I'm going to know anybody, places, and, and, and do all kinds of stuff that would, I would have never been able to do. I, at work events, I go to things where I might know only one or two people and I have to walk in for a business thing and look presentable and say hello to people. And these are things that, I mean... I'm sometimes still amazed that I can do it because I'm not a very extroverted person. And, and, and when I do things like that and I say, you know, you know, pretty good. I have to give myself brownie points for doing that. But I think I would have never been able to do it without this program to just show up to life. I'd be, if it wasn't for this program, I'd be um, in my room eating under the covers, afraid to leave the house, um, I wouldn't have a life. It would be TV and food. That that would that would be my life. I wouldn't have a job. I wouldn't have a family, a relationship. I wouldn't I wouldn't have anything if if it wasn't for OA. Um, 
and for changing my life. That's the kind of person I was. I was not, I was heading to be the kind of person who could not function. I, I would have been the poster child for dysfunctional living and, and food would have been the only thing that I would have had because that's the only thing I had growing up uh, that that kept me going. Um, I, I want to back up now. Um, I believe that I was born a compulsive overeater. I, I really um, can never remember a time that I didn't uh, have a problem with weight from the earliest time that I have a recollection. And I can remember when I was like two years old. I've, I have a very good memory. Um, so I always had a weight problem, and I always loved food. I just remember having this love for food. And, um, and I discovered after I came to OA how I knew I was a compulsive overeater. And that was at nursery school. Because certain days for snack, they had cookies, and certain days they had crackers. If it was crackers, it was going to be a bad day. If it's cookies, I, it was going to be a good day. I got excited, you know. I could hardly wait. And the, the snack determined my mood. So that tells you, that tells me I was a compulsive overeater from the very beginning. Um, I also set myself up. I was never happy. As a child, and you know, I never knew everything went together, but I was never happy as a child. There was always something wrong in my life that when I got this, I'll be happy. It used to be, uh, I was an only child for the first five years, so I think if I had a lot of brothers and sisters, I'd be happy. My brother was born and it didn't make me happy. And if we moved to a neighborhood, I didn't have a lot of friends when I was little. And so my parents, when my brother was born, we moved to a neighborhood that had lots of children my age. And I said, now I'm going to have a lot of friends. And within a few years, I didn't have any friends because I didn't know how. It was too hard to relate to other kids. You know, that was too much energy to have to, even as a kid. You know, I look at, I have, a, uh, I have uh, four and a half year old twins and my daughter is just, you know, I just look at how normal kids are. My daughter she just goes to school and she has lots of friends and we don't tell her how to be, you know, she just knows how to be friends. It just comes natural, I guess, with some people. She doesn't have the head that I have and um, that I had, I should, you know. And, uh, but it just, it, but for me, life was too hard. That Things like having to be a friend with another little kid. And I'm talking, I was young, six, seven, eight years old. It was just too hard um, for me. Life started becoming going to school, only looking forward to eating at school, lunchtime, coming home, eating when I came home from school, looking forward to dinner, looking forward to what food I could sneak from the kitchen to my bedroom. Uh, it was not a happy childhood. Uh, I, I stopped believing in God, and I believed the world's problems were on my shoulder, and I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, and you know, I was terrified of nuclear attacks and wars and going to Vietnam and, and later, you know, whatever there was, hijackings when that started. And all the world's problems because I didn't, I didn't believe there was a God. Um, and I, I, you know, I believed I was responsible for everything. My grandfather lived with us until uh, I was eight years old. And my mother, when we took him to the hospital... 
to have an operation, my mother said, uh, you know, promise grandpa you'll take care of the family and you'll watch everybody until he comes home. And I took that literally. You know, parents say lots of things to kids that they don't take, but I took it and ran with that because he never came home. You know, he died a few months later and never came home. And I felt I had to take responsibility. My parents were very dysfunctional. And um, and so I felt I, you know, I, uh, in my head, not that I was doing anything, but in my head, I had to take care of everything. And, um, and I guess I did become responsible. My, my father had a business. My mother helped with it. My, fa- my father had a lot of medical problems right after my grandfather died. And so um, a lot of responsibilities did fall on my shoulder. But I couldn't take care of myself. You know, here I'm helping take care of my brother, helping take care of the house a little bit, cook, cooking, which was great for a compulsive reader. You know, my parents taught me how to make meals. So when my mom was running to doctors and stuff and the nursing home when my grandfather was there, that at least I could feed myself and my brother. And, and you know, that was great as a compulsive reader because I gave my brother one spoon and I took the whole pot of stuff, you know, but uh, I could do that but I couldn't function normal things like going to school and doing homework or just functioning. I could barely make it, you know. Um, I believed, and my weight kept just going up and up, and I had no idea as a child that the weight and my obsession for food even had anything to do with one another at the time when I was a kid. I didn't, there was a disconnect for, for a while. And um, when I was 10 years old, I went on a trip. My dad uh, was from Israel, and he went back. He had never been back. Uh, he, met my, he had come to this country, met my mom. They got married, and I was born a year later, and he just never made it back. He was, they were going to live there, and, uh, my parents, when they got married, and because of me, they never, they never, they never wound up there. And, and so when I was 10 years I had my 10th birthday. One of my dad's nephews was getting married in Israel, and so... Me and him went together back on that trip. And I talk about the, I always talk about this trip in my story because that trip, there was a couple things I learned on that, three important lessons that I got on that trip. Uh, one was I got unconditional love from my family. I had an aunt in Israel and cousins, and they loved me unconditionally, and I never felt that at home. I don't know why. I never felt my parents loved me unconditionally. You know, I, um, I'm i sure they did, and, and but I, you know, I always felt my brother got all the love, and I didn't feel like I got that. I, I had relatives. We had a lot of cousins here in L.A., but I never felt I was part of them. I was a distant cousin. They were all close cousins, so I always felt distant from them. So I never felt... I just didn't feel unconditional love. But in Israel, because they had never met me, they just loved me unconditionally. And and so I felt that. I also must have felt something spiritual there. Uh, I, I felt something. And uh, and I lost weight. I, we were there a month. And part of it was my aunt over there tried. She was a Holocaust survivor, as was my father. And, and she tried to force me to eat. You know, and I was a pretty fat kid. I was, I was a good 70 pounds overweight, at least at 10 years old. I was wearing the same size I think I wear today, you know. And, and I'm not a very tall, big person, but when I was 10 years old, people thought I was going to be a big football player because I, I was really big and husky, and people, you know, thought I was going to be big. And I wore size at least, 
Today we're 34. I either wore to 34 or 36 at 10 years old, men's clothing, you know. So I was a really big kid. But it wasn't big enough for my aunt because being a Holocaust survivor, the bigger, the healthier. And so she was going to fatten me up. She was going to show, I, I'm sure this was in her head, that she would send me back to my mother fatter than I came so she could prove to my family here that she loved me. I know, I mean, this is the kind of person she was. Um, so... Actually, I lost weight on that trip, and, and it was a geographic. It was because it was food I wasn't used to. We were walking around a lot, uh, and I think I really felt like I was. It was the first time I really felt alive because I was in a different place. Uh, but I'll tell you today, even today, I'm very close to some of my cousins in Israel, and they still remember when I was 10 and how I couldn't walk but a block and how I, I would get all sweaty and I hated to be there. And Because and, today when I go, I visit them quite often. I want to walk everywhere. I don't want to take a car. I, you know, I'm physically very active, and, and they just remember me as a kid that I, I didn't want to walk and I whined all the time and I just wanted to drink soda all the time. And it was just like night and day. Uh, anyway, uh, but on that trip, I lost weight. I came home and I really decided I was going to learn to lose weight. I was going to find out about diets and I was going to lose weight. And I told my mother, you know, find a diet for me. I'm going to lose weight. And I couldn't make it. The first night she put, when I came home and she, she put me on a diet and the first night I couldn't make it. I went to bed early because I couldn't stand. I couldn't. If I didn't have my food, I couldn't stand to be in my own skin. You know, that's a true compulsive overeater. It was like an alcoholic going through withdrawals. I just, what am I going to do with myself? If I couldn't eat after 7 o'clock at night, what? I just didn't know what to do. So I went to bed and, and then I woke up an hour later and I asked my mother if I could have something, you know, uh, and that something led to me breaking the diet. And that became my pattern. I could barely make it a day. I try all kinds of diets as a kid. And what happened is I started gaining weight more rapidly. Probably that summer, it was 1971, I probably lost like 15, 20 pounds that summer. I also went to camp during the summer and was active and lost weight. So I gained it back and started gaining more rapidly than before because the deprivation set me up to even eat more crazy. In 1973, my mother was told she had very little time to live. She was only, how old was she been? She would have been 43 years old. And she already had a severe case of uh, high blood pressure, hypertension. She had heart disease. Uh, and her doctor said, you don't have much to live the way you're going. She, she, she was getting quite obese and uh, killing herself with food. And... She found a way through a lot of coincidences in 1973. And she tried to force me to go to a few meetings with her. And, it, you know, first of all, I was only 12 years old at the time. Yeah, I would have been 12 years old at the time. I wasn't ready. You know, I hadn't hit a bottom. I wasn't ready. OA was different. It was more like a diet club anyway back then. At least that's how I saw it. And I wasn't ready to do her diet um, but she took me to a few meetings and it meant nothing. And I really believed that my mother was a compulsive overeater. I got that at those meetings. I got that it was good for my mother. She never believed in God before then. All of a sudden she was very spiritual. Um, uh, she, 
I believed it was great for her and her friends. But one thing she did, she had all these OA friends. She went to meetings every night. She did everything I did many years later that I thought was so awful of her. But anyway, uh, but I really thought it's great for all of them, but I'm different. I really believed if I ever lost weight that the, the thing that loved food would switch off. I, I was very naive. Maybe it's partly being a kid. Maybe partly it's my compulsive reader. But I believed there would be a switch. And if I ever got to normal weight, the day I got to normal weight, that switch would go off. I would like myself so well, I would never want to eat again. Ha, ha, ha. You know, even after all these years of absence and stuff, it doesn't, it's a daily struggle. The switch doesn't just go off. It gets better, I should say, but it, it never goes off. You know, but I really believe, for me, it's going to go off. You know, I'm not going to be like you guys. Um, and uh, I uh, started junior high school. And I remember hearing at the meetings, you know, uh, just one day at a time, one day at a time, one bite at a time. And I remember they served coffee cake in junior high school. And I said, OK, I won't eat the coffee cake because I knew I once I started, I couldn't stop. And I went months away. did help me with that. So I didn't eat it for months and months. But once I started... I had to have it every day. And it started with one, and months later it went to two, and eventually three coffee cakes a day. So I knew, you know, it started sinking in. By the time I was 14 years old, I had tried so many diets. You know, and we're talking four or five years of dieting. I had tried so many, because every Monday I was going to try something else. Every Sunday I binged on everything. Um, I gave up dieting. A year before I came to OA, I just hit a bottom with dieting. And I knew that... All the diets in the world were almost the same to me. Either I could eat healthy things like cottage cheese and meats and vegetables and healthy stuff, or I could eat all the junk. You know, it became very clear. And some days I ate the healthy stuff, and some days I ate all the junk. And I would binge. I remember trail mix was something that was on my healthy list, but I would sometimes binge on that. You know, and other times it was healthy for me, but, but you know, I'd eat a normal portion uh, if I, when I was, I was doing something. Anyway, in 1976 is when I date that I came to away because that's when I never left after that. Uh, what happened is one of my mom's friends in OA, my mother would come and go, I should say. She never really made it, but she'd come and go and um, she'd have these turnarounds. And in 1976 was one of the, her turnarounds. She got really strong for a while and one of the people who helped her find a way, a longtime friend of hers who helped her find a way, was also very strong into it and had a son my age. And my mother told me about a meeting in Beverly Hills that was for teenagers away. And that's the first miracle that there has to be a higher power because whenever my mother would sit down and try and fix me, my parents used to do that, sit me down and try and fix me. They were so crazy. My brother was crazy, but they would fix me. You know, I was the problem. And they'd sit me down and we'd curse at each other. And it was never helpful, you know, to try and fix me. Anyway, I didn't. And she told me, you know, me, she said, you know, me and your father are very concerned about all the weight you're gaining. And instead of saying, screw you, I don't know why I agreed to go to that team meeting. And that was June 1976. And that's when I date my coming to away for good. But I really was not an OA member. I mean, I didn't consider myself. I just went to that Wednesday meeting once a week, and that was it. I started high school, and then besides snack and lunch, they had 
a student store open all the time and they had cookies and I started binging on the cookies at the student store because now I could eat all the time. It wasn't just twice, you know, there wasn't just two meal periods at, during the day that I had to fight the demons. And I remember going to that teen meeting and saying, how do I stop eating those cookies? Another miracle. Why? I, I was afraid to open my mouth. I never opened my mouth at that OA teen meeting. And I didn't consider myself a member. But I don't know what gave me the courage to open my mouth, but I did. And it was about October 76, and that's when I date my abstinence, because the leader of that meeting, who later became my sponsor, said, why don't you just call in every day what you're going to eat to the, you know, somebody here? And I did. And And it wasn't absence like I thought absence should be. It wasn't a diet. It wasn't very rigid. But that was the beginning for me. Then in 1977, uh, there was a meeting at Roxbury Park on a Saturday night. And they said we could have a team meeting the hour before the regular meeting. And nobody came but this one friend I was calling in my food to. And, but I kept coming. And then I didn't want to stop doing what I was doing because if I stopped that meeting would die because it was only me and him. And then, I guess it was, maybe, I guess February, March of 1977, my mother suggested I go to an intergroup meeting at the LA intergroup to tell them about that meeting. You know, tell them about the team group and publicize it. And they elected me to the intergroup board and they said, we'll make a team position. And so all of a sudden I started doing service. And here's somebody who did not want to be part of OA and didn't want to do it like my mother. And here I'm, active on the intergroup board. I'm going to two meetings a week. Oh, and then I started going to a Monday night meeting because there was this big uh, meeting on Monday night and I started going. And uh, and so now I'm going to three meetings a week and I still don't think I'm an, really an OA member. You know? And that's how it worked for me. You know? And I don't say this is the best way to do it, but it's what I did. You know? It's what happened to me. I should say what God, what my higher power did for me. Um, let's see came the summer I didn't have a sponsor I wasn't working the steps and, and but I was losing weight I gotta say too I, I don't know how because I wasn't planning to lose weight I was just trying not to gain weight at that point really because I still thought one day I'd wake up struck with the desire to go on a diet but I but I was just doing this thing not to gain weight and lo and behold, I was losing some weight. And, you know, I was 15, turning 16. I was starting to even outgrow some of it. You know, I came in about 45, 50 pounds overweight at the time. Uh, anyway, the leader of the meeting, team meeting on Wednesday said, why don't you get a sponsor? And I eventually asked him to be my sponsor. And he suggested I start writing an inventory. You know, write down, admit things about myself. I, it was just, too terrifying but he didn't say you have to do it right away and, he, and it took months probably took me nine months to write an inventory it was a hard one that he actually gave me but I was able to do it and eventually give it away you know and for me it's amazing the path that I've been on I uh, I uh, I was told before I came to OA that I'd be 250 pounds by the time I was in high school because of the way I was gaining weight so rapidly. Or no, by the time I graduated high school because I was gaining weight at a very rapid rate. And my, and, my, and my pediatrician said with the heart disease my mother had and, and with my father's family's history, 
I would probably in my 20s have a heart attack because I was doing so much damage to my body. And you know what? When I graduated high school, I was 135 pounds. And I, you know, uh, you know, I wasn't obese, you know. And, and today, I'm going to be 41 very soon. And I like to talk about my age because I don't look it. But also, I am healthier than I was as a teenager. You know, I exercise more every, every day. It's not part of OA's tools, but it's part of my recovery, that every day I can physically move my body and, and that I like to do things, you know. Um, I love to walk. I, I have a, a exercise bike at home. Not that I love to do that, but I do it. It's not so bad, you know. I, I uh, Let's see, what else? So anyway, I, I was amazed that I even was going to be alive. Not that the doctor said, but I always thought I would die before I graduate high school, and I did. I uh, When I came to OA, I really believed that I would live at home for the rest of my life because I felt like I couldn't succeed. I wasn't good at school. I didn't think I was stupid, but I just didn't think I had the practical. I didn't think I had the rule books of life, you know. And this program, people loved me in a way, and I felt like even if I fail, I, I got, my first job was, my first real big job was a jack-in-the-box, you know. No wonder being a compulsive overeater working with food. But I couldn't even figure out how to put a hamburger together. And I thought I was the biggest failure. You know, if you can't, you know, people always say you'll work at McDonald's if nothing else. Well, well, if I fail Jack in the Box, that's worse than failing McDonald's, you know. That's really the lowest. I thought I was on the lowest rung. But you know what? I'd already been in OA a couple of years, and I knew that people in here would love me anyway. And I was able to go to meetings and pitch about that I couldn't figure out how to put a hamburger together. But I just did God's work, and I showed up, and I used, I learned to take the principles of this program in all my affairs, and I would just pray to God in the bathroom, and when I was mopping floors, and you know what? I became a good employee, and eventually I was doing the work of two employees. They couldn't replace me, you know. And 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 I share about that. And and um, I work in a bank now. I've been there for 22 years, you know. And I have a very very good high position. And I, and I got a high position. Now I'm not so young, but in my 20s I got a very very uh, good position. And I share about it not because of the material or the status, but because it's this program. From going from somebody who couldn't function, who could hardly get himself going to school, I couldn't do homework, I couldn't function, to somebody who functions very well in life, there's got to be a higher power. And this program's got to be a miracle, because left on my own devices, I wouldn't be there. Um, you know, and I can deal with people. I'm a manager of a bank, and I deal with people. It's only about people. And here I was afraid of my own shadow, you know, and, and, and I can do it. Um, that's part of my recovery. And you know what? My ego gets away sometimes at work, but most of the time, I just take the print. The reason I do well at work is I take the principles of this program. When customers come to me for a loan, I talk to them about, like I'm talking to an OA member, let them share their fears, share my fears. You know, if people have a problem, that, uh, I share my own problem. You know, in a way, just like I'm talking to an OA member. And it works. You know, I feel good about going to work. You know, in the morning, I most of the time, 99% of the time, I look forward to to going to work or whatever my day is, wherever I'm going for the day. Before, I dreaded waking up to another day. When I was a kid, I feared dying because I didn't believe in God and I was just fearful of death and war all the time. Today, I'm not afraid of dying, yet I love to live. It's It's the paradox. You know, before, I hated life, yet I was afraid of dying. Today, I just, you know... Everything, I, I just have such a different attitude. 
and it's because of this program. It's not because I thought myself right. It's because of the 12 steps. It's because of abstaining uh, and walking through a lot of stuff. You know, over the last 20-something years, I've walked through a lot. Life ha- I didn't skip down the road of happy destiny. It's uh, Life's been tough. Uh, I, uh, my parents, who I never had a good relationship, I moved out of, home, out of my uh, parents' home when I was 18. I learned to make amends to them. That was something that came up in my inventory. And I learned to make amends to them, not financially, but by becoming a better son, by going out to dinner with my dad and just talking to him and, and with my mother, not fighting with her so much and, and spending time with my parents. And I became very close to my parents and we took trips together. We went to Israel and Europe twice. No, yeah, once to Europe, once, uh, once just Israel alone. We went on two major trips all together and we became very close. And I, I, my mother, I expected to die early. She, she died uh, six years ago, which was actually a very long time for her. She never really got away. She never, she always felt she was a member. She never got it. She died. Her disease killed her at a too young of an age, 65 years old. And she was lucky to live that long. But the quality of her life really was awful the last few years. Um, But I made amends with her and I changed. And when she died, there was nothing left to say. You know, and uh, and I got to enjoy the times, you know, she almost died five years before she did. And so every holiday was this could be our last. And and I enjoyed it. And and that was that a different attitude because of this program. Um, My father, who I really thought would, you know, live forever. I got close to and uh, when my mother died, it was perfect because my father was really lost. And for three years. We were like best friends. Anyway, he died of cancer unexpectedly. I found out a week before he died. He found out that he had cancer. He died three years ago. And uh, and it was the same situation. Because of this program, I had a clean relationship. There was nothing to say after he died. And I miss my parents. That's why I get weepy. That's the only time I cry is about my parents. Um, but it's because I miss them because it was good memories and happiness. And, you know, um, if it wasn't for this program, my life would be black. I mean, to lose both my parents, you know, it, or, and, or anything. And, and I, I've lost my aunt in Israel, died very young in her 50s and uh, cousins. And I've, I've had a lot of awful things um, happen. But because of this program, it's given me the, the tools to walk through it without eating over it. And I'll tell you, the difference is I lost a relative. My uh, godfather died after I'd been in OA about eight years or so. And even after eight years of OA, it wasn't enough. I, I, I went into a really bad depression. And I felt like, how could life go on if somebody so close to me dies? And it was so unfair. And I know if I didn't have OA, it would have even been worse. But... I guess after having, when my mother died, I was already in a way, what, uh, 19 years or 20 years. And I just saw the, I just was grateful for the relationship we had and the time we had instead of, you know, feeling sorry for myself all the time. I only feel sorry for myself maybe 5% of the time. Most of the time, I, I'm just grateful for what I had and grateful for what I have today in my life. Um, you know, my wife's in OA. Uh, we met through OA friends. We we have now uh, uh, these 
two four-and-a-half-year-old twins, and, and my son is autistic. And, you know, I was afraid to have children uh, because I, I'm a very set person set in my ways. I need a lot of space. OA, oh, being an OA member can be very high maintenance, you know, with meditating, all this going to a lot of meetings. And, you know, with having kids, I was afraid it would take away my space because I'm a person that needs a lot of space anyway. It's hard enough being in a relationship. And I was afraid of having kids, but I, you know, we decided to do it. And um, and then to have twins and very active children. And then a few years ago, about three, year, almost three years ago, we found out our son is autistic. And that could be overwhelming. All those things can be overwhelming, especially from where I come from. And you know what? And sometimes it is. And again, it's, you know, five, ten percent of the time it's overwhelming. The other time it's my attitude. I'm so grateful for them because they've enriched my life. And if it wasn't for the twenty-something years before they were born that I had program, you know, it was like a little bit of an insurance policy. I wouldn't be the father I am. I feel I'm a pretty good father, you know. And most of the time I can handle pretty well what it, what I've been dealt. And I can just think, you know, everybody has something in their life. More people have something with a child with a disability, a niece, nephew. You know, there's, you know, it isn't so unusual when I feel sorry. Or I feel sorry my parents aren't around to enjoy my kids. And then I think of my father who didn't have his, he lost his parents, you know, in the Holocaust when he was uh, 12, 13. And so, I, I, you know, it's, it just is a different attitude. And it's because of this program that I can change my attitude and be grateful for what I have. You know, and with my son, I can be grateful. He's almost speaking now, almost speaking in full sentences most of the time and understanding and he's just the most loving kid and you think with an autistic child they shouldn't be loving and he's just so affectionate um, I love to travel and, and we did so much traveling before children and most autistic children can't travel and my son has been to Israel three times I mean he, he's, he's, he's a great traveler both my kids you know with twins it's hard enough to travel and little kids and we've been able to not that we're going on all these sightseeing tours but uh, uh, we, we, we visit relatives and we've been able to do a lot. And so I'm grateful because the cards that we've been dealt, we might not be able to travel. Um, um, my program and the way I work the steps is not as good today as I'd like it to be. You know, it's really, I didn't appreciate the luxuries that I had before when my life was different. Um, this morning, uh, my wife and daughter went to ballet in the morning, and uh, a babysitter came to take care of my son so I could go to a meeting. And she took him for a walk, and all of a sudden I had about 15 minutes that nobody was in my house. And I sat down, and I read my For Today book, and I meditated, and I, it was calm. That happens once a month if I'm lucky. You know, I try and read the For Today book and say the first three steps in the morning, and my kids have two TVs going and, and trying to get breakfast, and, you know, and I'm running late for work, and, you know, and, and that's just life sometimes right now. You know, it's not as good, but thank God I, I go to at least one meeting a week, and it's hard because my wife being a member of OA and with my son, you, and the kids need time, so it's like a, it's a struggle even sometimes one meeting a week. Today, now I've made it to two meetings today, and I, Wednesday was at a meeting. That's three in a week. That's like a record for me. But I have to appreciate, you know, I have to get when I can get it. Sometimes um, if I'm away for a day for something, I just take advantage of the time alone. You know what's nice today? I used to hate to be alone because of the voices in my head. And today, 
I love being alone because I'm not afraid of those voices in my head and I just enjoy my own company. So that's where I've come from, hating myself to feeling I was a piece of, of shit to just liking myself that I'm good company. You know, I remember a few years ago I had to go to the OA conference in New Mexico and I left a day early and I went to, uh, to Santa Fe for one night and by myself and drove in the car for like a couple hours by myself and took myself out to dinner and took myself to a movie. And I said, you know, David, you're a good date. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm by myself. To be able to say that to myself, you know, and not be afraid to be by myself and to do that and not be afraid of the world. I've come so far. I've come really far. Um, and I remember something Roseanne said in the car once going to a meeting to somebody else that I heard that there is no finish line to this program. You know, and you don't have to do it perfect because you're going to be in here the rest of your life. And she, she was saying it to my mother. And, and, and I heard it. And something 25 years later, I still sometimes tell myself, there's no finish line. I don't have to be perfect in a way because I'm going to get up tomorrow and work on it again tomorrow. You know, and even with my kids, I complain because I can't go to as many meetings or take care of myself. But you know what? In a few years, it's going to be gone. And there's just different cycles in life. And this is the cycle that that's part of doing services being for them. And, and I still give away. I still do always service. Not as much, but I, I do always service. And, you know, there's a balance. And that's because of this program. Anyway, um, I thank Roy for asking me to, to share tonight. Uh, it always helps me. You know, when I share, I get to remember where I come from. And it just makes my program a little stronger. And when dinner comes tonight, it will be a little bit easier to when dinner's over. You know, when I do something, when I give service, whether it's sharing at a meeting, going to an intergroup, whatever it is, it just makes it a little easier to, you know, um, so, so I thank you, and I thank you all for being here because I need you. I can't, I can't do it alone. We, we need each other, you know. So, thank you. Now, now it's I guess time, ten minutes for question and answers. Is that how it works? Okay. Does anybody have a question? Thanks for your share. If you struggle with this. What's your process in dealing with it, feeling sorry for yourself? What's my process for dealing when I start feeling sorry for myself? Um, my process is that I work the program, and what I mean by that is I I go to I go to meetings, so I it helps that helps change my attitude. You know, I I hate to write. I'm not one that writes every night. But when I start getting too much into my head, that forces me to write, uh, to share about what's going on. And some of it is just taking, some of it is just after that, in my head, I can, I can hear people talking to me instead of my own voices. I hear all the years of meetings, people saying, get an attitude of gratitude and some of the cliches and hearing what people say helps sometimes I can change it in my head. You know, the voices, I can change channels in my head sometimes. Not all the time. Sometimes I need to, to go to a meeting and talk about it to somebody or, or do an inventory on my, you know, on my whatever's going on. But sometimes I can change the channels now. And I think it's, you know what, too, a lot of it is because I keep coming back anyway, even when I feel sorry for myself and, 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 and it, Time helps in this program, you know. Um, 
you know, so, so, uh, and, and, and I also, I use my car to do a lot of meditating because, I, like I said, I don't have a lot of peacefulness at home, but my car, sometimes I meditate. I put on classical music and I use my car to meditate and I talk to God and that gets, I think that's a lot of times what changes the station in my head. And I walk, that's something physically, it, I need to do the exercise, but it's also when I walk, especially like during the day at work, I use I, I start talking to God and I use my walking as a time to meditate and that helps my attitude and gets me out of my stinking thinking sometimes. Sandy. Um what a miracle that you got am I right you got abstinent at fifteen? Yeah. How did you what was your like spiritual awakening or what is it that kept you abstinent from that point forward and how do you and in addition? How do you stay humble, being so long in program? Well, how I I mean at the beginning, the first year I didn't even take a candle because I didn't think it was I didn't think it was abstinence. I mean I knew I was doing something, but I didn't feel I was on the the right food plan because, and I didn't take a candle the first year, and it, and. Um, and it was after a year that I said, you know, and my mother, who was this big proponent of food plans, actually, was the one who kept telling me, David, you know, you're abstaining, the way, some people abstain the way you're doing it. And they call it, you know, she's the one who told me. Uh, and yet she was one of these that if you eat one piece of bread, you blew it. And so she'd always blow it every all the time. But uh, actually, she so she was an Eskimo to see that I was abstaining. Um, and... What I think for me happened after, like after about two years, I saw so many people who came to OA at the same time I did leave, and I was so afraid of leaving, and I was a, that that kept me from binging, doing service. I I knew that if I broke my absence, I wouldn't be able to still do service. That helped me. Sometimes it was an ego thing, actually. Uh, and the third thing that helped me is that I started to like myself. This program, and I think that's what the steps are about in fellowship, the fellowship helped, when I didn't love myself and I thought I was a piece of shit, the fellowship showed me a lot of love and acceptance and so I stopped hating myself and I think a lot of times when I did want to eat, I didn't want to hurt myself and before, before away and when I was new, Eating hurt myself, but I didn't care because if you hate yourself, who cares if you're hurting yourself? So I think that makes a difference. I really, you know, to put it in a, you know, um, you know, and, and sometimes I don't know why did I get it and other people didn't. I don't know why. You know, I, I'm also gentle about what is my absence. I'm very flexible, but I'm, but I'm a stickler that I have to abstain. It's very flexible, but I can't. For me... I just can't binge. That's my bottom line. I just don't binge. You know, I don't use food like alcohol. You know, I, I, I've had sugar. I eat sugar uh, with my meals. I, I, uh, there's nothing I, I abstain from. There's times that there's certain things I don't, I, in the past that I couldn't eat. I couldn't eat peanut butter for 15 years. And now it's, it's a very healthy thing. I don't like, you know, it's not that I love it. It's, a, it's healthy for me, but for many years I couldn't eat it, or pasta for, for many years I couldn't have it because I couldn't stop, and now I can have it. But, um, but So I'm not very particular on 
how what I, the specific foods I eat, but I just have to keep abstaining. I can't say I blew it because that's what the disease would want me to say and just eat everything I want. So, uh, but, you know, um, but I think that's a big thing that this program and the steps, you know, it cleans, it cleans me on that level where I don't want to do harm to myself. And that's what it is. If I eat, I, if I go out and leave this program and start binging, for me, that would be killing myself. That would be like a slow suicide. And I just look at what my mother did to herself. And it was a 20 year death. You know, and I don't, so I don't want to commit suicide. Oh, how to say, I don't think it's a big deal. I'm lucky. I, I really don't, I, I've got a lot of ego and pride, but I'm not a, I see what that stuff does, and I don't think it's that big of a deal what I've done. You know, I've just kept coming back because I have to. I look at people, I, I, I'm Jewish, and I go to a synagogue, you know, I go to synagogue, and people go for 50 years to the synagogue, and nobody gives them brownie points for doing it. And I think of myself, uh, oh, wait, it's not a religion, but it's the same thing. You just have to keep going. If you don't go, you start to lose it. People who stop going to synagogue, they, they're not as religious. They start to lose it. And that's how I look at it. I mean, I really look at it that way. And, you know, at work, nobody cares how long I've been in a way. They think it's great. I'm not fat when I show my pictures, but they don't think anything of it. So anyway, thank you for letting me share.